Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Beloved brothers and sisters and friends, it's been actually a few weeks since we were last here in the Gospel according to John. In fact, it's been about three weeks since we were here. And the last time we, we together meditated upon the contents of this chapter, at least the beginning of this chapter, Jesus himself was beginning to instruct his disciples, the apostles. He was beginning to instruct them of his need for them to go back into that hot zone, which is Judea, because it wasn't that long ago that they were there in the temple space, if you remember, and the Jewish religious or the religious Jewish establishment had enough of Christ. They were angered, they were furious at him because they saw him who is a mere man before them and they were, ang- they were hostile towards him because he who is a mere man was making himself out to be God. Claiming to have equality and with, with the only true God in Israel. They knew that, that God is one. That's the Shema. Hero is Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And when this man who stands before them, who they know who his father was and his mother was, and is claiming to be equal with God, they were enraged at Jesus. And they decided the best thing to do, which is the lawful thing to do, according to the law in Leviticus, was to stone him. Because what Jesus was doing was he was a blasphemer in their eyes. He who claims to be God, who is not God in their eyes, is a blasphemer. So they picked up stones to stone him. And then what Jesus did with his disciples, they come out of that hostile situation and they go across the Jordan, the Transjordanian side of the Jordan River. That is the eastern side of the Jordan River. And they find a place and they settle there. Now where they settle is up for contention. It's not known exactly where they went. There could be a number of places. But as I said in previous weeks, that that it may be as as little as a day or a day and a half journey from, from where they are now to the temple space in Jerusalem. Or it could be even as far as a three to four day journey. But one thing for sure is this. They're in a more secluded, more serene rural environment. And they're not experiencing the hostility and the rage of the Jews where they are. A relief for the disciples of Christ at least. But that relief will not last very, very long. Because while they were there, they received news. And that news came from Mary and Martha, sisters that were very well known to Christ, a family that was loved by our Lord and our Savior. And that news came in the way of a messenger. And you remember the message? Lord, the one whom you love is ill. At that point, that message was short and sweet because they knew that Jesus, if anyone knows what to do, it is Christ. They knew him intimately. They knew he loved his brother or their brother. And they knew if anyone was going to bring recovery to their now very deathly ill brother, then it has to contain the power of God. And they knew at that point, knowing Christ intimately, that the power of God was with him. They knew that Jesus had the power of God. God had sanctioned his son. God the Father had sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
And they knew that if anyone could do anything about it, it is Christ. That message was sent. It wasn't a simple FYI, you know, for your information, Jesus. They expected Jesus to do something about it. They expected Jesus to come and to bring healing to their brother. But what takes place next is a surprise probably to many of those who are with the Lord and probably likely very much a surprise to the sisters themselves because upon Jesus hearing of the news, the dire news of the one he loves, he decides to remain back two more days across the Jordan to do whatever he, it is he was doing. We're not told what Christ was doing, but whatever it was, he remained two more days and he delayed. Now, it's a decision that may on the surface seem like an insensitive decision, but actually it's an act of incredible love. You know, more often than not, we don't have insight as to why things happen. We in our lives have, have events that take place in our lives and we sometimes ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Or in the lives of our loved ones and we see certain events taking place and we don't have the insight. Now, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that God is good and He does all things well. Everything He does is good. And we believe that and we, we hold to that truth by faith because His Word is true. But there's always a part of us that thinks, but I wonder why this is happening. And not always do we get the answer. In fact, most of our experience in life, we don't get the specific answer as to why things happen, for why they happen. But this is a situation where by the grace of God, the Word of God has been preserved for us so that we are able, as God's children some 2,000 years ago, learn behind the scenes why this took place. Why it is that Jesus remained back two extra days and why he didn't immediately leave everything and go to see Lazarus, the one he loved. Now the reason is specific to John chapter 11, I'll give you that much. But there's a principle in here, beloved, that is eternal. It's a principle that goes throughout the word of God. And it's a principle, therefore, that you and I are able to grasp onto and believe upon. And that is... We explained it last week or the other week. And that is everything that God does is ultimately with one great overarching purpose. And you remember what that is. It is the glory of God. There is no greater cause. There is no greater end for anything that is done in the universe. Anything that the Lord does in his own universe than his glory. There's no greater good than the glory of God. There's no greater good for what we do and how we conduct our lives than having His glory front and center in our minds. The glory of God is the absolute greatest good. And everything Jesus did was for the glory of God. And everything we ought to live for is for the glory of God. But there is a parallel truth which is incredible. And if you remember I said that without any Without any uh, change, this parallel truth is always running consistent with the fact that God does all things for His glory and everything that we experience is for His glory. And that parallel truth is that everything He does is not only for His glory ultimately, but it's also for the good of those who love Him, those that He loves, the good of His sheep, not at wolves and not the goats, but the sheep, those who have been united in Jesus Christ by faith because He loves them. Because they are the recipients of the love of Christ. How wonderful is it 
that God does all things for the greatest good and at the same time, they are for the good of His people. Glorious truth, beloved. Our Lord remaining back those two days after receiving the message was not despite the fact that He loved Mary and Martha. It was precisely because He loved Mary and Martha. Because unbeknownst to them, yet, He was doing something far more grand, far more glorious, that which is of more value than all the gold in the world. Their faith was being strengthened by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're good shepherd. They're his sheep. And he takes care of his sheep no matter what. No matter what. And as we'll continue to work our way through this text, this narrative, we'll come to see it's not only Mary and Martha and even Lazarus' faith that is being strengthened, but even the faith of the disciples. For the text or the next verse that is before us, our Lord gives much needed instruction to his disciples. And if you put your eyes down to verse 7, we'll read it together. Let us go to Judea again, he says. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are, you are going there again? In other words, Jesus if we go, is this not going to be a suicide mission for all of us? But then Jesus answers, verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The response of our Lord may not seem so clear at first. And in fact, it has puzzled many throughout the ages. But I believe, I believe he's teaching the disciples two, two critical lessons. Both are spiritual truths for their souls. But, but he extracts those spiritual truths, both of them, from two analogies that were common to the ears of the Jews in those days. So he's speaking in a, in a sense what they can understand physically, but applying that spiritually for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. The first we addressed last time, you may remember the words where Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? And to be honest, I felt I may have confused some of you when we spoke last time. And to be honest, maybe I wasn't that clear. I try to explain it. So we'll briefly recover some of that ground before we move on. The Jewish way of determining time, beloved, and some sources would indicate that this is also the Roman way of determining time, is that the day, a full day, was consistent of two parts. You have night and you have day. It's more the day that Jesus is concerned with, the day. And whether it's night or day, let's talk about the day for now. It was divided into 12 equal parts, 12 equal parts in the day. The day began from sunup to sundown. So in other words, the daylight hours were divided into 12 equal parts, and every one of those parts was called an hour. Now, of course, it differs from summer to winter. In fact, between summer and winter, it can be as much as 30 or 40% different in the amount of time that the sun is up. But it didn't matter. 
Because if you divide the time that the sun is up into 12 equal portions, the portions may change. So what they would call an hour may be greater in summer than an hour in winter. But the fact of the matter is that there's 12 equal portions in any given, in any given day. 12 equal portions. So the Jews are able to look back in history and they can see that there were so many days Day after day after day after day. And although the sunlight in those days and the time or span of time may have changed from one to the other, what is consistent in every single day since creation is that every day rolled over complete. Every one of those days had, as they would see, 12 hours in a day. Some hours were longer than others, but he had 12 hours. So they can look back and they can see not a single day rolled over unless it was complete. Even the supernatural, miraculous days. You remember Joshua in the time of Joshua, how the Lord made the sun stand still for many hours. Didn't matter. It didn't matter. If it was 20 or 30 of our hours, it's okay. We divide those into 12 and there's still 12 hours in the day. Or in the time of King Hezekiah when he was ill. You remember what the Lord did as a sign for him. He made the, the, the sun go back 10 steps. Which is incredible. It didn't matter. Because that day is divided by 12 and it was 12 hours in the day. So what Jesus is teaching, I believe, the disciples is as you look back. And you know consistently, day after day throughout human history, there's been 12 hours in every single day. Not a day has rolled over unless it was complete. So too is the span of your own life. You see, the disciples are fearful. They're afraid. They're afraid of returning back to Judea. Because they're, they're thinking if they go back to a hostile territory where the Jews really want Jesus' head... And maybe, maybe their lives will be cut short. Will they? Will their lives be cut short? See, I believe Jesus is saying, no. Now you've got it all, all wrong. Just like not a single day has rolled over unless there was 12 equal portion, unless it was complete, unless there was 12 hours in that day. The span of your life, Jesus is saying, and mine is also predetermined by God. God, in his sovereign decree from eternity past, has numbered every single day of their lives, every single day of the life of the incarnate Son of God on, on the earth. Every day of your lives, brothers and sisters, has been numbered by God. And this is not a new concept to the Jews. In fact, it's, it's throughout Scripture. They knew the concept. You remember Job. In Job chapter 14, we read, Man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you. He's speaking to the Lord. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Or the well-known psalm, Psalm 139. You know the psalm that we were wonderfully and fearfully made. That psalm, it says there, Your eyes, speaking to God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. The psalmist is speaking to God and saying, Before I even was a fetus. You saw it. You, you saw my parts, he says. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How God is sovereign. He's determined all things. There's nothing that escapes his sovereignty. Nothing that escapes his sovereignty. 
How can we forget or move on before we address Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord's speaking to those who claim to be his own. And he's saying, do not be anxious for anything. You remember what he says? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? I think that's the point Jesus is making here with the disciples. I think that's the encouragement he's giving them. That God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over our movements, our activities. He's sovereign over our breath. Every breath we take is numbered by him. The disciples right now are fearful before the Lord of going back to Judea. They needed to hear this. Brethren, you need to hear this. You need to hear that God is sovereign. That nothing escapes his sovereignty. And you need to hear that that whatever takes place in your life, according to his word and his promises, and not one of his promises will fall to the ground, is ultimately for his glory and for your good. And I love the way, I absolutely love the way our Lord speaks to his disciples. Because, beloved, I believe these truths are meant to flood your souls if you are in Christ with peace and comfort and rest. You see, Jesus alleviates the fear of the disciples not by saying what he already knows. Like this is the Son of God. The Apostle John, the same Apostle, told us back in chapter 2 that he doesn't need to know what is inside a man because he knows it. The fact that now he knows that Lazarus has died, who came and whispered that in his ear? No one. Divine knowledge. Jesus knows the divine calendar of the Father for the Son is known to Christ. The work that he is meant to accomplish in the incarnation is known to Christ in its every detail. Jesus could have said to the disciples, My beloved sheep, I know you're afraid, but don't you worry. We'll go to Judea. We will go to Bethany. We will heal Lazarus. And this trip will not be to my demise or yours. I'm not going to die in this trip. And you're not going to be captured or stoned or imprisoned or flogged. It's okay. Don't worry. He could have said that and given them some peace in the temporal. But he's not concerned with the temporal. Our Lord is concerned with the principles of eternity. Not in the here and the now. Let's just speak wind under your sails. He's not concerned with that fluff. The self-esteem. He's not concerned with pep talks. He's concerned with a principle that the disciples can latch their teeth on, latch their faith upon. Principles that are eternal, no matter what the circumstances are. Even if they were walking into their death, the principle that the Lord gives them is one of encouragement. It's one that feeds the soul and satisfies the soul like nothing else. These disciples and God's people, they don't need pep talks. They need truth. And the truth is contained in the word of God, the promises of God. So what does he say? So what does, what does he say? Basically he says, <laughs> fix your eyes upon your God. This is your God. Your day is numbered. Do you think there's a power or a principality or a force or anything else? 
that can thwart His will, that can stay His hand. His word says that your days are numbered. Not a single day will be lost. Every moment of every day that He has preordained and determined by His decree, He will give you and you will not pass before you live out every last moment. Look to Him. Look to Him. I love the way He doesn't He doesn't give them the pep talk in the temporal, but rather turns their eyes upon the principle that is in the Lord. But beloved, we have to say something here. This is not a blank check given by our Lord to reckless and irresponsible living either, is it? It's okay. You know, you're not going to die a day before he's determined or decreed that you die and live the way you want to live because your life will never be cut short. That's irresponsible. That's not of the faith. Rather, what the Lord is doing here, I believe, <clears throat> is he is removing the fear of the unknown. And that's what anxiety is. And the fear of the unknown. I, I don't know what will happen if we do go down to Judea. And Jesus is saying, it's not up to you to know. Leave the outcomes in the hands of the Lord. He knows. Do you trust him? Then place your trust in him. Because he knows. I love that. The outcomes ought never, outcomes ought never bring peace to your soul. Let Christ alone bring peace to your soul. Let God alone bring peace to your soul. If He doesn't bring peace and rest and comfort, nothing in this world will. No amount of words or treasures that this world can give you will. The sovereign God is in complete control. That's resolute assurance. And the Lord knew it. And He's shown them day in, day out. He has shown them how to live in resolute assurance. Because he knows his hour had not yet come. He knew the divine calendar that the Father had given him. He knew that going down to Jerusalem will not, in fact, end in a suicide mission. Not at all. Because our Lord knew the work the Father had given him to accomplish. And our Lord knew that he will accomplish every last detail of what the Father has given him. That no one can cut his life short. How many, how many times have we heard that the Jews wanted to hurt him, stone him, push him off a cliff and arrest him, and yet they couldn't? Jesus is not quite on the 12th hour. Right now he is on the 11th. But he knows that he's indestructible until the hour, the twelfth hour comes. When the Lord, in his divine timing, says, Now, now you will lay down your life for the sake of your sheep. Not a millisecond before. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Your days are numbered. But what we do with those days is critically important. Our days are numbered. Everyone will experience the full 12-hour day. Your lives will not come to completion until the Lord has determined every single day that he's given you will be lived out. But what we do with our lives are absolutely critical. I'll tell you why. One reason is because our lives will pass just like that. Oh, how many plans do we have thinking that we're ten foot tall and indestructible. 
our lives will pass just like that. Whether it is a baby in the womb of his or her mother who tragically dies. Or whether it's a great-grandfather who's seen a hundred years of life. Life goes by just like that. It's a biblical principle. The psalmist says man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And a little bit closer to home, maybe a passage that we're more familiar with. In the, in the passage of the, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the book that bears out his name, you know the text. What is your life, he says, for you are a mist, or some translations, a vapor. Think of your kettle, the vapor. Try to follow it with your eyes and count to three. It's gone. A mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Brothers and sisters, you know that. Friends, you know that. You know life doesn't continue on and on and on. In this age, you know that. You know that's a reality. You've read the genealogies in the Bible. Maybe you've skipped over them, but we don't skip over them. We read them all and we put you through that because it's the Word of God and we, and we benefit even from the genealogies. But you see, every one of those lines is a generation and another generation and another generation. One generation gives to another generation. This is death. This is a reminder of death that takes place in our world. You've read or seen the family trees. Death is a reality. One generation gives way to the next. Now your experience may be different to mine, but I can tell you before the Lord that I've never met a single man or a woman who was close to death who looked at me and said, boy, my life was too long. It's always it went by so quickly. Always. You may have regrets because they thought they would have the time to do certain things, but they didn't have the time. Right? The time ran out. How many members of our own families have we lost who probably said the same thing? When someone passes young and death is a tragedy, often we hear people say, life for this person was too short or his life or her life was cut short. I only say that because the death of my cousin took place only a couple of weeks ago and he was only 40 years of age. And that's the, the thought that may come to mind. And as tragic as that life or the shortness of that life may seem, according to God's eternal decree, that was the 12th hour. And that life was complete. Your hour and mine are not the same span of time. I don't know yours and I don't know mine. But what we do with that time, it matters. Because it will go by so, so quickly. The sun will set. And the Lord, I believe, is giving instructions here so that we don't look back in regret and say, what have I done? If that's you now and you're looking back and thinking, Oh, the wasted years. What have I done? There is one in Christ who is faithful and just. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Praise be to his name. Confess. Come before him. Acknowledge your sin and receive forgiveness from him. But moving forward, 
as he illuminates the hearts with the truth. May it be that we take responsibility and concern with how we live our lives moving forward. And I think Jesus here gives us good instruction, wonderful, godly instruction as to how we do it. And so I believe Jesus does that with the second analogy that is before us. He goes from the brevity of life to how it ought to be spent so that we may not have regrets. And he does it through a natural picture, like a, a known picture to the, to the Jews. And he's painting a physical picture that has a spiritual application for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So back in John chapter 11, verse 9, let's read. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I don't want you to think about your life or mine in a series of 12 hours because I think he's moved on from that. I think the analogy doesn't make a lot of sense if we just consider only the 12-hour piece. But rather now, we ought to see our lives as years. And with years comes days and nights. Days and nights. And Jesus is speaking here in days and nights. Both are contained in every, everyone's life. We experience days where there is light and we experience nights where there is but darkness. It is the sun that illuminates the day. The sun brings light so one can see what he or she is doing. But by contrast, the night is darkness where you cannot see what you're doing. The natural order of things teaches us, teaches these people, that if you want to be fruitful with your hands, with your labor, with your work, with your exercises, then you ought to do your work in the day. This is a, an agrarian culture. right? And it's... And it's Going back, it's hard for us to envisage these things, but this is a day where there was no stadium lights. There was no heavy, heavy, high, illuminous projectors. Street lights were non-existent in these days. The majority of the work was done outdoors. As I said, it's an agrarian culture. So farming and plowing and cultivating and animal husbandry is what they did. And all that took place in the outdoors. So if you're going to work with your hands, if you want to be fruitful with your life, you ought to do your work in the day where there is sunlight, where you can, where you can see And quite often, if you needed some supplies, it wasn't as though you can go to the corner store. The Bunnings, you had to go long distances and go for long walks. And the danger in this society was when you walked, if you walked in the night, there was predators. There was, what do they call them? Not pilots, the other one. They, they were, um, the, anyway, the ones that, that are found in the water, the um, pirates. I said pilots, pirates. There were pirates that were there to rob you. There, there are snares, there are trapments, cliffs. There's all sorts of things that you could stumble upon in the in the night time. So if you had to do work or if you wanted to do work, it makes logical sense and it would be fruitful for you to do the work when you can see during the sunlight hours. Otherwise you'll stumble and you'll fall. There are hazards everywhere. You know that. Hazards all over the place. Potholes, sharp objects. As I said earlier, cliff faces, predators, pirates, you name it. There are hazards everywhere. And if you decide, or if these people decided, and the disciples decided to walk a long journey in the night, they're going to find a hazard and they're going to stumble. If you don't believe me, 
Think of how many times you've woken up in the middle of the night and had to go to the bathroom and maybe because of laziness or maybe you're courteous to your family members, you decide not to switch on that light. And then you realize and recognize that incredible talent that your little toe has in clipping the furniture in the night. It finds the stumble. If the night, if it's dark, you will stumble. It's a fact. And if there's work that needs to be done, you need light to do it. Our Lord is not so much concerned with teaching the disciples, as I said, how to avoid potholes and animal husbandry. No, that's not what he's doing. No more than when he was teaching them that he's the good shepherd and they are the sheep. Now, what the Lord is trying to teach, I believe here, is a spiritual reality. Because like the sun is the source of light that brings illumination to the daylight hours. I believe Jesus is saying just like that, there is a spiritual light that is required for spiritual work. The sun brings light to produce work in the physical sense. And there is a spiritual light that is absolutely required in order for you to accomplish anything or labor anything in the spiritual realm. Because apart from this spiritual light, stumbling is inevitable. And the stumbling without the spiritual light is not a matter of simply clipping your small toe. It's not a matter of doing your knee or your hip in a fall. It is far more serious. The consequences of not having the spiritual light that Jesus, I believe, is speaking of here is that you don't fall into a pothole, but into sin, into rebellion against God into treason and disobedience. The wages of sin is death. The sun is required to illuminate the earth. It breaks through the darkness and gives light. So too is the spiritual light required to illuminate the pitch darkness of the morally corrupt system of this world, ruled by the devil himself. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, the ruler of this world, we're told. And that light, beloved, is none other than who? God himself. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light. The God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The sole source of spiritual light is found in the triune God of the universe himself. That light is fully revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God in flesh. God in flesh. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2, 9. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Hebrews chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul, my apologies, the Apostle John has already told us in the prologue of this book that bears his name, he's already said these words, In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or, 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 or apprehended it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. John the Baptist, not the light. 
But he came to bear witness about the light. In John chapter 12, verse 46, we're told, I, Christ speaking, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see the dichotomy, light and darkness, light and darkness throughout the scripture, in particular in the gospel according to John. And of course, the great I am statement that we looked into in, in the earlier chapters, in chapter 8 of the gospel according to John, when Jesus stands before the crowd there in Jerusalem and he says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the incarnate Son of God, is the light of God. And he's the soul light of spiritual light there's none others it's him the light of god is found in jesus christ there is no other spiritual light apart from the god of all the universe in his son jesus christ and as i said earlier he is light in action that's what we're seeing so christ is light in action wherever he goes he is the light of god in action and stating the obvious being the source of and the substance of life. He cannot stumble. He cannot fall. He can only do what is perfect and good and righteous according to the will of the Father. He's incapable of disobedience. Christ is incapable of disobedience. To have disobedience, to stumble and to fall, darkness is required. In Him there is no darkness because He is light. Every word he said, every deed he did, every action, every motive, every intention was perfect and faultless continually. And that's why he's able to say that he always did what is pleasing to the Father. He never stumbled. He never stumbled. There is a debate that says, could have Jesus of sinned? Did I, did I say that right? I'm not sure. Could he have sinned? And the answer is never, never. He's the source of light. He can never sin. His nature is light. Darkness is necessary to sin. God is light. In him there is no darkness. Making the journey to Judea, our Lord has absolute assurance that his life will be preserved until the twelfth hour. And he also knows that he will accomplish the work of the Father because he doesn't walk in the darkness. He won't stumble, but rather he walks in the light because he is light and it's impossible for him to stumble and fall. Therefore, all that the Father has given him, as I said before, he will accomplish incompleteness. And that's why upon the cross he's able to be hung upon the cross and cry out. It is finished. I love those words. And he has the time to do it because his time will not come to an end until all is being accomplished. But the disciples, on the, on the, on the other hand, they, they needed to learn a lesson. We need to learn a lesson. The disciples were fearful. Returning to Judea brought about a lot of fearful thoughts in their minds. They're to trust in the sovereignty of God. I believe Jesus is teaching them this. But it's also they are to trust in him for the work that he has given them to do. And that work, beloved, is spiritual. Not, it's not physical. It's spiritual. 
And therefore it requires that the apostles or the disciples walk in faith. They walk in the light of God by trusting wholly and fully in Jesus Christ. Because he is the light of God. It's important that we make a distinction. Christ could not stumble. He's perfect. He is the light of God. He could not stumble. But we can't say the same of the apostles or the disciples. You and I can't say the same. We are not the source and the substance of life. We are not the fountain of life. We are not light. Christ is. He's light and therefore he can't stumble, but they can. And we can. But beloved, this is the good news. We don't need to. They don't need to. Why? Because of what is written in verse 10. Have a look what is written in verse 10. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is how we know that Jesus is not, no longer speaking in the physical sense, but really speaking in the spiritual sense. The light from the sun comes upon you. But Jesus is speaking about a light that is in you. Not upon you, but in you. Not physical, spiritual in nature. Christ is concerned with not so much the stumbling in the physical sense, but the stumbling in the spiritual sense. That's his concern. It's a matter of the soul. His primary concern now for his disciples is their soul. And beloved, when God created the universe and everything that is in his universe in six literal days, he said, behold, it is very good. Light, purity, uprightness. There was nothing but righteousness. It was an abode that was fitting of God himself. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Sin entered into the world through the fall of man and all creation then plunged into darkness. You know the story. From that point, beloved, the default position for mankind, fallen mankind, everyone who is born in Adam, the default position is darkness. In Colossians chapter 1, we're told the spiritual default is called the domain of darkness. Characterized by wickedness, evil, sexual immorality, depravity, lies, rebellion against God, in contrast with the light. Darkness is ugly. It's depraved. Beloved, it's a terrifying thing to contemplate and meditating upon moral darkness in the human soul. It's actually a very scary thing, and I think only Christians who know the Lord actually in fear of this reality. Because the devastating consequences of sin is so corrupting, it's so depraved, it is so unscrupulous, crooked, immoral. Fallen humanity is so bad that we're not told that we plunged into darkness, but rather the Apostle Paul tells us that we are 
darkness apart from Christ. Listen to the word of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 from verse 3. This is, this is incredible here. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or filthy or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Of course, the Apostle Paul is exhorting Christians here. And then he goes, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexual, immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Goes on to say, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Hear this. For at one time, you were in darkness. No, that's not what the Apostle Paul says. For at one time, you were darkness. Let those words sink in, brethren. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Not simply in darkness. The Apostle Paul is telling us, you're so depraved, so dark, so ugly, so wicked. You've committed such treason against God that you weren't in darkness, you were darkness. This is not like putting substance into a into black paint and then removing it and it's all coated with paint somehow it can be cleaned that's not what the apostle paul is saying it's more like a piece of coal that has been burnt to a crisp and no matter which way you cut it it's black 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 the emotions the will the intellect Everything about an unredeemed person is dark and ugly. Brothers and sisters, that's us. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps. That's what I was. Jesus, thank you. They can do nothing but stumble. That's their plight. Because in the darkness, one stumbles. So what, what, what does one do when they have no light? It's just pure pitch black. Stumbling is all that one can do in that sense. Disobedience to God is all one can do. One cannot please God apart from Christ. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. Not that you are in darkness. You were darkness. You became the source of darkness. How often do we, we read these words and we may believe them. But there are consequences to these words. We've heard of beloved people who have great concerns for their children. It is a heartbreaking thing to have a child go astray. Especially in a Christian household. It's heartbreaking to see a child go towards destruction. But how often have we heard a parent, I'm sure in sincerity and meaning well, saying things like, if only, if, if only my child would break those horrible, corrupting relationships. If only that friend who came along 
and began to corrupt my son. If only he was out of the equation. If only my son gets out of that category of people or that community of people. I'm sure if he comes out of them, then he'll come good. Actually, he won't come good. She won't come good. Because the problem is not the relationships. You're the problem. The problem is the person. You were darkness. Darkness. They're helpless in and of themselves. There's no light to appeal to in and of themselves. There's no hope to appeal to in and of themselves. The only resources that they have access to is corrupt darkness. It's rebellion. It's wickedness. It's filth. It's depravity. There's nothing that can can appeal to. You try to appeal to their intellect. Their emotions. We try to appeal to their logic. Are we trying with the power of our persuasion to try to persuade them out of the darkness? Darkness is what they are. It's what we were. Darkness. Nothing to appeal to. No goodness, no light, no hope in and of ourselves. Beloved, we don't appeal to emotions. We don't appeal to logic. We don't appeal to the power of our persuasion. We don't try to impress with many words. We bring Christ to this situation because Christ is the light. He's the only source of spiritual light that can bring salvation to a dead soul. Nothing less than for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He needs to shine his light in the heart to give the light of the knowledge of of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing less will do. No other appeal. There's only darkness. One source of light. God, the Almighty, triune God, in Christ Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of His Spirit. And God can move and redeem a sinful, lost sinner who is darkness. Beloved brothers and sisters, he did it for you and I. And if he can do it for me, he can do it for anyone. The light of Christ is needed. Only he can pervade the darkness. I love love the way our Lord's advent was foretold and prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, and it's also recollected or recounted that's not the word. It's also requoted in, in Matthew chapter 4. And this is what he's written. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Remember, pointing to the advent of Christ. Pointing to the advent of Christ. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. When that light, when that glory When God shines his light to reveal his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And that light penetrates the very soul and the very existence of mankind. It's so pitch black. Only his power, only his light is able to pervade that deep darkness, that moral 
corruptedness only only in the light of God through Christ Jesus and when that takes place it is the power of the God who called the heavens and the earth into existence it is the same power that caused spiritual life in the life of a of a sinner once sinner who bent his knees to everything that this world can give and the prince of the power of the air and the God of his way age and now with light and eyes being opened because the light in action Jesus Christ has revealed the truth the light of God through the power of the spirit of God only then is one able to see God in all his beauty and splendor and the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Only then is one able to see the filth of my heart, the wickedness of my soul, the depravity of my sin, the rebellion I have against the good and holy God who has only ever done what is good towards me. Only then do I tremble and fear because that's who I was and that's where I was heading. But praise be to God in Christ Jesus. The grace was shown to me on that day through the revelation of the light that is Christ and brought salvation to this dark, dark soul. What glorious truth. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Have your sins been forgiven? There is no greater reality. Back to what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. For at one time you were darkness. But he goes on. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But instead expose them. In other words, now be who you were made to be. You're no longer darkness, you see? You're no longer darkness. It says now you're light in the Lord. You're now sharing in the spirit of Christ, the one who is the light of the world. He's united yourself, your sinful, wicked self to himself. Could you believe these words? If they're not written, if the Spirit of God hasn't revealed that to our hearts and made known the truth and the spiritual truth of these words, these words are just too high and lofty to be believed. They're too glorious. How gracious is our God in Christ? Walk in the light. See what he saved you from. Recognize the filth that you're in. The depravity, where you were heading. Recognize the fleetingness of this world. That it promises everything, but it's a mirage. You'll keep walking and find there's no water, but I see it in the distance. And you'll walk a little bit further, but there's no water, and I'll see it in the distance. And you'll just keep going and going and going until that which is a mist that is your life and mine is over. And he's done his job because he's deceived. And he's deceived by saying, come, come follow me. Come follow the riches of this world. This is what you want. Yes, your flesh. But there's something far more glorious. Because your soul cannot be satisfied apart from the bread of life. The bread of life that is Christ. Your soul will never be satisfied by anyone else. And you won't know it until his light pervades the darkness.
for you were in darkness. Now you have the light within you. According to our Lord in verse 10 of John chapter 11, that's what he says. So now you're empowered to walk in the light. Whereas before you're like that piece of coal that no matter which way you cut it, there's only darkness. You can only produce the works of darkness. Now light is in you. The Spirit of God lives in, in you. He empowers you to walk in the light, to desire the light, to love the Lord, to give your time to His Word, to find sweet communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, to find the satisfaction of the heart and the soul. He says, now walk in that light. Don't walk in darkness. See, this is the scary thing. As I said earlier, uh, a, a depraved person who doesn't know the Lord, and that was all of us, beloved brothers and sisters, that they're incapable of walking in the light. However, those who have had the light of God revealed to their soul and have embraced Jesus by grace through faith, they've seen the light. And they're now enabled to walk according to the power of the light. But this is the scary thing. You could still choose for a season to walk in darkness. It doesn't make sense, does it? But that's the flesh. Because there is something appealing within you that continues to want what this world has to offer. That will fully and finally be taken care of in the consummation of all things when we are indeed given the glorified bodies and fully and finally sanctified in completeness. But until then, there is a power within us that is not more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a battle. And Christian, you ought to be experiencing that battle. You go day by day and not experiencing that battle within, then you have to ask the question, why? Because there's a war that wages in. You, you just can't just put your feet up and say, I'll be right, because there is a tide that's taking you in a particular direction unless we are diligent. That we're embracing Christ by faith and we are diligent in purposefully walking in his light, giving ourselves in communion with him, giving ourselves to his word, enjoying the communion of the saints who encourage and exhort one another in the word of the Lord and the fellowship of Christ. We're not giving ourselves to him. We will find ourselves in the darkness again by that which appeals to the flesh. First Peter 2 tells us that the reason people stumble is because they're in the darkness and that stumbling is disobedience to the Lord. First Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word. It's when you think that you're okay. It's when you flex your muscle and think, I can do this on my own strength. I can do it by my own intellect. I'm okay. There's, there's temptations over here, but I'm strong. 
This is something I know I shouldn't do, but I, I'm sure if I'm careful, I'll be okay. I should be spending time with the Lord daily, but, but I'm really busy this season. Beloved brothers and sisters, don't hear me wrong. These things will not bring about salvation. Do not hear me wrong. We ought to, as believers, have those desires within us. But I'm saying those desires are quenched or squashed if we give ourselves over to the lusts and the passions of the flesh, the very things that bring death and not life, the very things that are darkness and not light. We walk as Christ walked continually and perpetually in the light, seeking the will of the Father above all things, the glory of God. Is that your life and mine? How serious is it that we stumble and fall? As I said earlier, he's not concerned with potholes or anything like that. He's concerned with your soul. And he knows what is best for your soul and mine. And that is sweet communion with him, fellowship with him. That's to be intimate with him. That's to see him for who he is and to rejoice in the grandeur and the beauty of our God in Christ Jesus. It's so serious that we give ourselves over, even for a season, to walk in the darkness or to neglect our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. How serious is it? What did Jesus say, you remember? If your eye causes you to stumble, if your hand causes you to stumble, don't get me wrong, Jesus is not saying go out there and start cutting your body parts up. Because the fact of the matter is, Jesus knows, and his listeners who have ears to ear, they know also. He's bringing out the consequences of those sins, but he also knows that the reason your hand causes you to sin or stumble, and your eye causes you to sin or stumble, is because of what's in here. It's not what is out here. The James tells us that temptation happens because of what is out here. No, not so much what is out here, but because what is in here wants what is out there. Jesus says it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you impure, but what comes out of your mouth. What comes out of your heart is what makes you impure. And he lists all the depravity of the human soul. So, beloved brothers and sisters, this is what I need to say. If you struggle with sin, if you indeed can examine your hearts and recognize you do hate your sin, you recognize the war and you're always appealing to the Lord, you may have some frustration over particular sins that you may not have victory over. What I'm saying to you is this. Take heed. Because you've been called to walk in darkness, sorry, in light. You've been called to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. You've been called to walk by the power of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to remain in darkness and to remain in sin. If there is a sin that's captured your heart or your mind and you remain there, that tells you a lot about the state of your soul. In fact, that's an oxymoron. It's self-contradicting to say that I am a child of the light, yet I dwell in the dark. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 3, 9. How is my life defined? I'm not saying that we do not sin. I'm saying has sin taken hold 
because there is victory over sin there is victory over the world over the world and it has purchased been purchased by our lord and our savior jesus christ and when we embrace him by faith he empowers us he empowers us to defeat that which once held us so tightly the dominion of sin has been broken in christ those shackles are broken you are no longer slaves of sin slaves of righteousness that is my soul only wants to serve him and yes when i sin i I ought to be grieved over that sin and that brings me back to christ where i belong don't ever dare to think that you need to clean yourself up on your own that's what the enemy will say you don't have the power You need to come to Christ. You need to bring yourself and find yourself at the feet of the merciful Savior who says, come unto me. You feel a burden? You come to me and take it off and bring it at my feet. Burdens, our burdens belong at the feet of Jesus Christ. They don't belong on your shoulders or mine. You know why? It would break our back. We have the strength to bring them to the the feet of the cross and no further if we think we can continue to bear them. We don't have faith in the Lord. For starters, dwelling in the darkness dishonors our Lord. I'm almost done, brothers and sisters. It dishonors the Lord, and that should be enough. The main motivation of the heart of the Christian to walk in the light is his love for his Lord, your love for your Savior. When you think of what he has done, that he's forgiven my sins. He's taking me out of the realm of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. My sins have been forgiven. I know the consequences of my sins. I know the Bible speaks about the wrath of God abiding and perpetual upon an unworthy sinner. And yet you've taken me out of that state and by your grace and by your grace alone, you have bestowed upon me forgiveness. And that creates love. The love of God floods and pours into the heart. The sinful woman of the city in Luke, we're told, Jesus said, he who is being forgiven much, loves much. So the question that needs to be asked to our soul is, how much have you been forgiven? If you walk away thinking, you know, I wasn't as bad as the next person, it's likely you don't love him that much. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners and I suspect I suspect that as Christians we ought to be thinking the same about ourselves because if we're honest and we examine our hearts we know how much darkness remains bring that before the Lord don't try to clean yourself up you cannot clean yourself up you bring it to the one who can clean you up you bring it to the one who loves you who says I will never leave you nor forsake you you bring it to the good shepherd who promises you to take you home You bring it to the one who says, you're in my hands, you're in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you away from me. Don't look to anyone else. The satisfaction of your soul is found in Christ alone. The very longings of your soul is not found in anything of the world. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. The treasures of the universe are found in Christ. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies are found in Christ. When the light of God floods the heart, The desires of the heart change from that which is temporal to that which is eternal, to that which is of the darkness, to that which is of the light. Beloved brothers and sisters, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the source. And he's the fountain of light, of life, of blessing. Don't look anywhere else. Let's, let's pray.